You're listening to the Manchester Vineyard Podcast. We'd love for you to join us. To discover more about who we are, where we meet, and how you can connect with us, head to manchestervineyard.org or follow the link in the podcast description. As I've been thinking about this talk, I've been thinking about the fact that September has begun and it's a change of season for many of us, isn't it? So summer has sadly come to its end, although Manchester has not got the memo, which is great. And now we turn to autumn. So summer is often associated with, you know, holidays uh, and maybe with a, a lightness, a slower pace, rest. Hopefully for many of you that's been the case. And autumn, on the other hand, is associated with things getting going again, the new academic year, new term, things kicking up a gear maybe. And that's just looking at the seasons in terms of our natural rhythm of life. And Pete Scazzaro, who writes books on emotionally healthy discipleship, identifies spiritual, uh, spiritual seasons in, in our lives, essentially. So he says that in the season of summer, in a spiritual sense, it's associated with a growth and fruitfulness and harvest and expansion. The season feels easy, joyful, and light. And it's a season where promises come true. In a season of autumn, in a spiritual sense, there is fruit, still fruitfulness, but it's often a season of change, a season of preparation, and a season of learning. It's maybe a time to reevaluate, to reassess, recommit, and plan ahead. It's a time for organization and refinement. And with both of those ways of looking at autumn in mind this morning, we're going to be reflecting on a passage about discipleship. And when I say discipleship, I mean looking into what it means to be a follower of Jesus, because that is what disciples are. As autumn begins, discipleship is then a timely topic. And as I said, autumn is a time of going again, so it's, it's fitting for us to be, revisit this topic of discipleship as we look to go again with our relationship with Jesus following him. Autumn is also time to reevaluate, reassess, recommit as we look to see how we have been following Jesus so far. And we look to recommit our whole selves afresh to him. Discipleship is also such a crucial topic because in general, it's important to Jesus, I think, discipleship, <laughs> you would hope. It's how he operated, and it's how he wants us to operate too. You see, if we remember, he called his disciples, and many people followed him and learned from him while being activated to put it all into practice. Likewise, Jesus calls us to both be disciples and make disciples. Christianity is actually a disciple-making faith. So discipleship is a key part of our Christian lives. And to look at the topic of discipleship, we're going to focus on a passage in Mark. So if you do have a Bible, do turn there to follow along. And, and before we get into that, I'll just give you a little bit of context. The first half of the Gospel of Mark is mainly recounting the start of Jesus' ministry. And in his ministry, he displayed many things. He displayed, he displayed his authority and power through teaching and miracles. He shows his authority over sickness and death with healings and raising the dead. He shows his power over creation and nature by multiplying food to feed the hungry and calming storms. And he demonstrates his control over the spiritual realm by commanding evil spirits to leave, giving freedom to those who have been demon-possessed. This is what we've seen so far in the book of Mark by chapter 8. 
And this is where we come in. And it's safe to say that this is a turning point in the book of Mark because Jesus' disciples acknowledge him, Jesus, as the Messiah, as the Christ for the first time. The Messiah being the one who's going to save Israel. So it's at this point that we're going to join the story in chapter 8, verse 31. You can follow along with me. We're just going to read a few verses here. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. We'll leave it there for now. These are some challenging verses, right? And I want us to focus on the first few verses we've read first, verses 31 and 32. I'll read them again. He then began to teach them that the Son of God, the Son of Man, sorry, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. That's what we're focusing on first. Firstly, it says that Jesus taught his disciples that the Son of Man must suffer, be rejected, killed, and in three, day, three days rise again. And I just want to pause here. The Son of Man is an odd term. Why does Jesus use it? What does he mean when he uses this term? And in a simple sense, in the Bible, the term Son of Man just means a human being. But we see the idea of the Son of Man being developed much, much earlier on in the book of Daniel in chapter 7. You see, Daniel was a prophet, and we can read about him in the Old Testament, and he talks about someone that is going to come that is like a Son of Man, meaning like a human being. And this Son of Man is going to conquer evil. It's someone who God gives authority to rule over his kingdom and who would share his rule with the people of God. And we're just going to read that. You don't have to turn to it if you don't want to, but it's in Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. I'll just read it out. This is a vision that Daniel had, and he wrote it down. It says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. What a vision, right? This is actually what the disciples would have been thinking of when Jesus talks of himself as the Son of Man this incredible human being that would have all authority, whom people everywhere would worship, and whose dominion and kingdom would be everlasting. More than that, the passage in Daniel 7 was also seen as a messianic passage, which means that the passage describes what the Messiah is and what he was going to be like. So when the term Son of Man was used, we had to think that when Jesus uses this term, the disciples would think about that Daniel 7 passage that we've just read. And it would link in their minds that Jesus was claiming to be like the Messiah-like figure we see here. And this is important because we read earlier, context has just told us that Peter has just identified Jesus as the Son of Man, as the Messiah. Because of the Daniel 7 passage, he was expecting a certain kind of Messiah. 
one that is going to rule a heavenly, everlasting kingdom, have authority and power, and all nations would worship him, which is true. But this is the picture that he had in mind when Jesus started to describe what the Messiah, the Son of Man, would do. So it isn't really that hard to see why Peter's response isn't actually that unusual. It's almost as Peter rebukes, rebukes Jesus, he is saying, hang on a minute, Jesus. What's this about suffering, rejection, dying and raising again? This, this doesn't look like the Messiah that I have in mind. What kind of Messiah has an everlasting kingdom and, do, and dominion, but also suffers and dies? That makes no sense. And I love that Mark says here, when he writes about this account, that Jesus spoke plainly about this. Jesus spoke plainly about the truth of his death, that there was no getting around the fact that this was truly what Jesus, as the Messiah, was set out to do, to suffer, to be rejected, be killed, and rise again. Jesus wasn't speaking to them in parables this time. It was all plainly revealed to the disciples. So moments after Peter has rightly identified Jesus as the Messiah, we find that he takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. And as a side note, I believe that there is something for us to learn here in this interaction between Peter and Jesus. You see, when we have a previous understanding of who God is, when we made up our minds about what Jesus is about, when we think that we know the plans and inner workings of the Holy Spirit for our lives, and then we're confronted with the truth of God, when he reveals to himself, to us himself, our reaction can be the same as Peter's. Our preconceived ideas about God and who he is can actually cause us to push back against God instead of listening and allowing the Holy Spirit to reveal God's heavenly perspective and perfect will. And actually, we do this all the time. We might impose our understanding of forgiveness onto God. God can forgive this, but he can't forgive that that I've done. No way. Or we might think that if we do the right things, if we tithe, if we don't swear, have some quiet devotional time with the Lord, then God will love us rather than accept his grace and love, which is not based on merit. It's just based on an understanding of our need and receiving his grace and love. Or another one, we might doubt God's goodness and love when there is suffering and pain in our lives. Instead of understanding God's heart, God's heart for us, that he is actually drawn close to the broken and suffering. We might miss the wider picture that the kingdom has come in part now, but that it will come fully in the future, and then there will be no pain, suffering, or tears. That is his plan. For me, one way that I used to uh, misconceive God was in the area of healing. I used to lack an expectation that God could heal in the moment. And therefore, even though I'd read about it in the Bible, I didn't have the courage to pray for people to be healed there and then. So I was importing my idea of God and how he worked into my life. And it had an effect on what I would do, or in this case, not do, which was to not pray for people faithfully. And as a follower of Jesus, we believe in healing, don't we? We believe that we are called to do that as well. And it's so easy for, you know, for us to take our own understanding of God and impose it onto him. 
But instead, we need to understand God as who he reveals himself to be through Jesus. And this misunderstanding of God is exactly what happened to Peter when he rebuked Jesus. But Jesus turned to his disciples and rebukes Peter. In verse 33, it says, get behind me, Satan, he said, harsh words. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Peter and his disciples, Peter and the disciples, sorry, Jesus' disciples. Peter and the disciples had misunderstood what the role of the Messiah was, right? They were expecting the Messiah to look a certain way, to act a certain way, to come with authority and power and to rule an everlasting kingdom. Yes, but they did not understand how Jesus was going to accomplish that if he is the one suffering, if he is the one dying and being rejected. But Jesus says they do not have in mind God's concerns, but merely human concerns. And what are these human concerns? Well, broadly speaking, for us, human concerns are money, fame, pleasure, status, prestige, etc. Things that have no value in the kingdom of God. But in the context of this passage, particularly human concerns were refusing to sacrificially love and give up everything for the good of others. Having human concerns in mind puts, means putting ourselves first, which is something that we're going to expand on later. But just to say now, we need to think of our lives through that lens of God's kingdom and Jesus' sacrifice and concern ourselves with the things of him and not the things of us. So a brief summary so far so we can keep on going. I'm hitting you with a lot. We have started by looking at the disciples' acknowledgement of Jesus as the Messiah. And they, of course, were shocked to hear the way in which Jesus was going to bring about his kingdom, that it involved suffering, rejection, death, and resurrection, all of which didn't line up to their prior understanding and expectation of the Messiah as the savior that they were hoping for. And this highlights their concern was more for themselves than God's plan. Usually in the Bible, when something is mentioned three times, you may have heard this before, it's important we should take note. And Jesus announces his death and resurrection three times in the book of Mark. The first time is the one we've just read in chapter 8. Then it happens again in chapters 9 and chapter 10 also. All three times we see that the disciples fail to act appropriately to Jesus announcing his death and resurrection. And each time it's interesting that Jesus follows up with some teaching about discipleship. Hence the link. You see, I think Jesus realized that if the disciples hadn't understood yet or accepted what it looked like for Jesus to be the Messiah, then they were also going to struggle with what it looked like for them to be followers of Jesus in that role of Messiah. So as we continue reading this passage, we find out from Jesus what it actually means to follow him. If you remember, we read from verse 34. I'll just read it again to remind ourselves. Then he called. Did we read that bit? No, we didn't. Give you our toes. Right. We're going to continue reading what we didn't read before in verse 34. 34 to 37. You can follow along. Then he called the crowd to him. And along with his disciples, and he said... Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. 
What good is it for someone to gain their whole, the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Just up to there. We see here that Jesus continues his description of what being the Messiah actually entails. And he moves on immediately to, see, to show us essentially what that means for anyone who wants to follow him. So he calls the crowd and says those words, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. And the thing that is so striking about this is that what Jesus expects from his followers is actually really similar to what he himself is about to go through. It was important for the disciples to understand that Jesus, as the Messiah, was going to suffer, be rejected, killed and rise again because Jesus said the same was to be expected of them as his disciples. So when we think of our own discipleship, we too can look to Jesus as his followers and we can know that we are to follow that same path. Jesus talks about denying ourselves and taking up our cross and following him. Following him. And in the same way that Jesus denied himself and took on the cross, we follow him and do the same. And this brings us to an important conclusion about discipleship. The fact that discipleship isn't about learning stuff, it's about doing the same stuff that the, of the pers- that the person you're following is doing. Does that make sense? Discipleship is imitation. It's not just information. So when we think of the disciples, we shouldn't be thinking of students of a teacher who sit, learn to have the knowledge and information in their heads and not do anything with it or be changed by it. No, a disciple of Jesus And a disciple in Jesus' time specifically was someone who literally, quite literally, followed someone actively imitating their lives and putting into practice their teaching. In other words, it's almost like being an apprentice or uh, or essentially like, you know, hand-on kind of, hands-on kind of work. An apprentice to a master with the goal of becoming more like them. And we don't actually see this form of learning that much anymore, uh, but it would be a common common way to learn a trade back then and we may see it still with more practical hands-on trades where you learn on the job today and, and you can imagine someone who started maybe an apprenticeship in a workshop let's say they're specializing in woodwork to make bespoke furniture very specific i know uh, the apprentice closely observes the person who has done it before and they will imitate and copy and what they see the master do, they will do the same. And a personal example for me, um, I'm, I'm a nurse, and um, during my nursing training, you do placements, and I had a placement in a, in a surgical theater, and they would do hip replacements, all sorts, really, hip replacements, knee replacements, carpal tunnel surgery, you name it, those kind of things. And I was there for about a month. But the first week and a half, I, I literally just stood there. I didn't want to touch anything. Um, I was by the side, taking in everything that the nurse was doing and you know how they would prep the patient, how they would scrub up, set out the equipment, sterilize the equipment, and so on. And I would literally just be behind the nurse's shoulder, careful not to touch anything. As you know, it's very important not to touch anything because you know aseptic techniques. Don't want any bugs getting anywhere. But over time, 
I was able to actually put into practice what I'd seen the nurse do. What I'd learned from observing the nurse as the nurse did the job. So that by the end, actually, I was doing most things that they were. And in a sense, I was their disciple for a month. I was imitating the nurse, putting into practice what I saw them doing. So discipleship, remember, is about imitation, not information. We want to be and live like Jesus did as his followers. So again, just to recap, Jesus spelled it out for his disciples in this section. Remember, he, said, he spoke plainly about these things. Firstly, he wants his disciples to understand who he is, and that's where he starts. This is the way of bringing the kingdom the, the kingdom of God, and it entails suffering, entails rejection and death, as well as risen life for Jesus. And secondly, he wants us to know, as his followers, that we literally follow his, his footsteps by denying ourselves and taking up our own cross as we follow him. So as we know from the disciples' experience, we can struggle with the following Jesus bit in, a, in an appropriate way. And we're going to spend some time uh, this morning just unpacking those two calls to discipleship. What does it mean to actually deny ourselves? And what does it mean to take up our cross? So those are the two things we're going to be focusing on for most of this talk. So firstly, what does it mean to deny ourselves? And often when thinking about denying ourselves, we may actually think of denying ourselves things. Denying ourselves something. So we deny ourselves I might deny myself a dessert after a meal because cutting down on sugar intake, or I deny myself the pleasure of a late night Mackey's because I know I don't really need it, or I deny myself my third coffee of the day because even though I want it, I know that the caffeine buzz later on is not what's best for me. And you might see there's a theme here in my examples of what I'm trying to deny myself. <laughs> it probably says more about myself than, yeah, wonder, I wonder what it says about me. But... When we deny ourselves things, we might deny ourselves a holiday because we don't have the savings or we're saving up for something else. We deny ourselves meeting up with a friend one evening because we're getting up early the next day. We deny ourselves things in life. And whatever it might be, we do that because we either can't obtain it or because we get something out of it. We get something out of denying ourselves, giving in to that desire in the moment. So it's for a future reward, so to speak, that we deny ourselves things. However, this is actually not how Jesus is talking about denying ourselves when he's talking about denying ourselves. This is not what Jesus is telling his disciples to do, and it's a common misconception that denying yourself is just denying yourself things, denying your desires. And I think what Jesus is saying here actually goes beyond that. You see, Jesus says, to be a disciple, to be a follower of him, one must deny themselves. So for me, as a follower of Jesus, he asks that I deny myself. Not that I deny things from myself, but that I deny my actual self. And this can be hard to understand sometimes. You could say that he asks us to deny ourselves from ourselves. But I'm not sure that makes it any clearer. To better understand this, let's have a closer look at what the word deny means and how it's used other times in the Bible. That might help, right? New Testament Greek scholars agree that it almost always relates to a person, which is interesting. 
So what this means is that denial in the New Testament is a disassociation and a renouncing, distancing from relationship with a particular person. We could say that denying is therefore the same as disowning or renouncing. It's the same word that's used in the Bible when Peter denies Jesus three times. And if you're familiar with it, you'll know what happened, that Peter denies that he knows Jesus. He denies any association with him. He radically and firmly distances himself from the person of Jesus. And therefore, when we look at self-denial through this lens and think of what it might mean to deny ourselves, we cannot miss the fact that self-denial is an intentional self disowning act. In effect, we distance ourselves and step away from relationship with the self as primary. And it's not that the self is bad. That isn't what Jesus is saying. Jesus isn't saying that meeting our needs is bad. Jesus isn't saying that our wants are inherently wrong. But what Jesus is asking of us is who are we more closely associated with? Who is our primary allegiance to? Is it ourselves or is it him? And the implication is that it can't be primary allegiance to both myself and Jesus. To deny ourselves means that we can say yes to someone else. Only by denying ourselves can we say a complete yes to Jesus. And as followers of Jesus, we have one primary allegiance to him alone. So we deny ourselves, in effect, to submit to Jesus. We disown or renounce ourselves to instead gain Jesus. And we move on now to the second part of what Jesus' instruction is of what it means to follow him. So firstly, we've just seen that it's to deny ourselves. And secondly, it's to take up our cross. So what does that mean for us to take up our cross when we don't have a physical one? And it's worth noting that when Jesus said this, he actually hadn't been crucified himself, which is obvious to some, I guess. But although, although it would have been identified as, as something hard to do, it would definitely added meaning after his death. I think this is interesting, that the powerful imagery wouldn't have been lost on his disciples, disciples but after his crucifixion, it just gains a, a richness to it, doesn't it? And the reason it wouldn't have been lost on his disciples, even though they hadn't seen Jesus be crucified yet, is that sadly crucifixion as a method of execution was a common Roman practice. It was reserved to those who had rebelled against authority of the empire. And to take one's cross, take up one's cross, actually refers to forcing the condemned person to carry the cross, carry this wooden beam that would be used for crucifixion to the location where they were going to be executed. And it was this brutal way of displaying authority over the person who was condemned. This person who had once rebelled against the Roman authority of the time would now be so subjected and in such complete submission that the very last thing they would ever do would be to carry their own instrument of torture and death to the last place they would stand. This builds for us as disciples of Jesus, a very challenging picture. What does it mean to follow Jesus? See, for the call to, to bear our cross as part of following Jesus points us to a submission to Jesus. 
And this isn't submission to Jesus' authority in part, but submission on the same level as the one who is carrying their cross to their death. And seeing this way really ties in, doesn't it, to denying oneself. It's about our allegiance to Jesus and submission to him over and above anything or anyone else, including ourselves. And this is what it means to follow Jesus as the Messiah who suffers, the Messiah who was rejected, the Messiah who was killed, and the Messiah who raised from the dead. It is submitting everything to him. Nothing is off the table. And it is deciding to make Jesus our primary allegiance over and above ourselves. Following Jesus, therefore, is a decision that we make. And we have to make this decision over and over again. We don't decide to follow him and then forget about it. In the the Gospel of Luke, this, this same account, he actually adds that followers of Jesus are to carry their cross daily. There is a daily intentionality to carrying our cross. So we don't just pick up our cross now and then. It's a daily practice. We do it with every small decision that we make. And we're actively choosing to follow Jesus by submitting to him in those small decisions. It may not seem it at the time, but those small decisions, in essence, allow us to be followers of Jesus. We are called to an entire new way of life where we surrender everything to him every day. But what does denying ourselves and picking up our cross, submitting to Jesus, mean for us today? How do we practice denying ourselves, taking up our cross in submission to Jesus? Well, simply put, it involves waking up every morning and saying, I'm living firstly for you, Jesus, not for myself. I'm living for your will and imitating your ways, not my own, and that affects everything. Instead of thinking how we might want the day to go, we ask Jesus, what way do you want it to go? We might want to go to to brunch, maybe, but Jesus wants us to spend time with him, or maybe he wants us to love and serve a family member, neighbor, or even a stranger on the street. Maybe he wants us to reconcile with the person that we're at odds with, or generously provide for others, even if we don't get anything back from it. Maybe he wants us to not cut corners at work, to sit to sit with the outsider in the canteen, to love those that are tricky to love. It's asking Jesus what he wants to do with our lives each and every day. And it all comes down to seeking God's will in our lives instead of our own will then, right? And in seeking God's will, it's something that, that we can do with every single decision. As I said before, every small decision, we can seek God's will. We can try to understand what it is that he wants from us. And it may mean that what we decide doing isn't actually necessarily what we might want to do or naturally decide in the moment, but we submit to God's will. So we look to God to know what we do in life, whether that is our job, how we spend our free time, how we spend our money, our relationships, how we treat our family and co-workers, what we eat, what we drink and own, our sex life, our plans and hopes for the future, our desires, it's literally everything. All is, submitting, is submitted to God and nothing is out of bounds. We don't offer up just 
the things that are easy to offer up, but the things that we find hard to. And I wonder what it is for you. What is hardest for you to give up and submit to Jesus? So, excuse me, if denying ourselves and submitting to Jesus involves placing God's will above our own, then how do we do it? How do we do that? And I think it starts by knowing who Jesus is by reading about his life and teachings in the Bible. And we sung about this earlier, didn't we? I want to know you, Lord, like I know a friend. It follows by spending time in prayer, allowing the Father to reveal himself more to us by being open and receptive to the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, relying on him to transform us day by day so that we may resemble Jesus more and more in everything that we do. When we practice denying ourselves and taking up our cross by practicing it day in and day out, it becomes easier to do that way. It becomes more natural to us as we do it more often. In doing this, we say that Jesus is Lord over our lives instead of ourselves. And we submit to his will over our own. Jesus' disciples had already had some experience of this level of following Jesus. They had a pretty good understanding of what it meant to be Jesus' disciples. They had left everything to follow him. They'd left their families, their livelihoods, their financial security, the place they lived, their safety. And these were normal people, submitting to Jesus, following him with everything they had. So some of Jesus' disciples were fishermen who left their boats to follow Jesus. There was Matthew, who was a tax collector, who would have left his wealth, his favor with the Roman authorities to follow Jesus. There was Simon, who was a political revolutionary, whose allegiance to political revolution changed radically to an allegiance to Jesus. The disciples had soaked up Jesus' teachings, experiencing everything with him, both the highs, the lows, as they discovered what it meant to follow Jesus. And Jesus asked the same of any one of us who wants to follow him and be his disciple, to leave behind our stuff and follow him with our all. Maybe this is something that you haven't thought about in this way before. You may have not recognized that Jesus actually wants all of your life and not just the parts that you're willing to submit to him. I just want to say that following Jesus requires full submission to him. The invitation for all of us today is to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him again and fully. But I also want to say that this is hard. And there's, there's no two ways about this. It takes effort and intentionality to put Jesus first above ourselves. Submitting to him without holding back. Self-denial and bearing our cross to follow Jesus certainly has a cost, but also has incredible reward too, which we'll get to in into a minute. But it's also worth noting here that actually Jesus, interestingly, practices what he preaches. He isn't asking of us anything that he hasn't done himself already. Jesus was himself fully submitted to the Father in everything and every way. Jesus so Jesus showcases self-denial in the way he constantly gave himself for others to the point of death. 
Jesus took up and carried a literal cross in full submission to the will of his heavenly Father. So when he asks for our everything as his followers, he asks only having given everything himself for us first. And there is a cost to following Jesus. You may have heard before that we have to be willing to count the cost of discipleship. But I want to turn that on its head just for today and say that it isn't just a willingness to count the cost of discipleship, but rather a willingness to follow Jesus no matter the cost. Would you follow Jesus no matter the cost to you? Because if Jesus is asking you to surrender everything to him, then it doesn't actually matter if it's a little or a lot. It's everything. As I said before, it's about putting all your life on the table. So I'm coming to the end of this talk, and I recognize that <clears throat> I have really hit you with some hard, challenging stuff this morning. So well done for keeping up with me. We recognize that discipleship is hard. Following Jesus on his own terms can seem actually extreme and costly. But I want to encourage you that the following verses give us some perspective to following Jesus Christ. We're still in Mark chapter 8. When we read, I want to read again from verse 34 to 37. We read first about what he asks of us. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone get, give in exchange for their soul? And I believe that these verses that follow Jesus' description of discipleship on his own terms give us actually a great deal of hope. Hope that actually as we lay down our lives for Jesus and the gospel, we actually gain the life that Jesus wants for, to give us. That's exciting. Verses 36 and 37 have two rhetorical questions for us as followers of Jesus. They highlight the value of what we gain as followers of Jesus. And as I said earlier, they give us a new perspective, a kingdom mindset, so to speak, a lens through which we should view this costly discipleship. Because if Jesus is the only one who can save our souls, if he is the only way to life to the full, then it doesn't matter what we gain in a worldly sense here in our lives. For at the end, if we don't have Jesus, we lose our soul, and then everything that we have gained will be for nothing. That gives perspective. We could have the whole world, but it would still serve us very, very little when it comes to gaining our soul. And this is because our soul has a price that we cannot pay. Even if we gained the whole world in this life, we could not exchange it for our soul. We could not pay that price. There is nothing that we can do through our own effort in this life to save our soul ourselves. And in contrast, when we lay down our lives and submit to Jesus, we are actually saving our lives. When we count the cost of following Jesus, it can be helpful to also count the cost of not following Jesus. Yes, we've learned today that following Jesus is challenging, but can we afford not to follow him? If we don't, then we lose the fullness and meaning of life that Jesus gives. Jesus said that he came that we might have abundant life. 
what Jesus offers his disciples is life everlasting. It's life to the full. It's communion with God the Father and the gift of the Holy Spirit. That is what is up for grabs for those who deny themselves and take up their cross and follow Jesus. And the reason we can have hope and trust Jesus to give us life is because he has already done it for himself. Remember, Jesus said that he would suffer, be rejected and killed, but it doesn't end there. On the third day, he would be raised and come to life again. A life which is abundant and full, for he is life himself and would not die again. So we actually, as his followers, can be confident in Jesus, believing that the life he has to offer is more than the life that he asks us to lay down. We can trust Jesus to save our souls because he has already shown that he has the power and the authority over life and death to do so. But the abundant life that Jesus promises us isn't for later. It starts now. As we follow Jesus, he is, in effect, restoring us to live out our God-given purpose to grow in Christ-likeness. Where sin gets in the way of us living out our original purpose to express God's image fully in our own lives, Jesus made a way. For as we deny ourselves, we leave space for the Holy Spirit to work within us to form us into the image of Jesus. The cost and the sacrifices that Jesus asks us to make are, in fact, for our ultimate good, to be whole and holy, to be freed from the destructive nature of sin in our lives, to walk in step with the Spirit who gives life and freedom everlasting. And that's not just it. The abundant life that Jesus offers his disciples goes beyond ourselves, becoming more Christ-like. When we follow Jesus, we are saved into an incredible community where there is love, where there is care for one another, where we long to build each other up and encourage each other on our discipleship journey. We we long to do this here at Manchester Vineyard, don't we? We gain purpose beyond ourselves as we imitate Jesus in his servant nature, to see God's kingdom come to heal and restore the lives of those around us. And we also want to see that more here at Manchester Vineyard, don't we? Through following Jesus, our relationship with God as our Father is restored. We can relate to him again. And he gives us spiritual gifts, the Holy Spirit, to bring about good works in our lives for the benefit of others. Yes, there is a cost to the kind of discipleship that Jesus expects from his followers, but the abundant life that we gain in return makes us see that anything that we lay down for Jesus just pales in comparison with the spiritual riches that he offers us. So even though Jesus' call to exclusive allegiance, complete submission can seem extreme and all-encompassing. When we deny ourselves and take up our own cross, we're not actually repressing or eradicating ourself, but it's actually the way in which we allow the Holy Spirit to restore and to restore us to become more fully who we were created to be and live how we were always meant to live. So just one final recap as I come into land. Firstly, we have seen that Jesus defines his authority through self-sacrificial service, humbling himself, suffering, being rejected, and laying down his life. 
That's number one. Secondly, Jesus calls us as his disciples to follow him by denying ourselves and taking up our own cross. And this implies a primary allegiance to Jesus above all and everyone else and full submission of our lives to him. Thirdly, in doing this, we gain full abundant life. We are able to live out our God-given purpose as we are transformed by the Holy Spirit to become more like Jesus. The life of this world that we give up and sacrifice when we follow Jesus is nothing compared to the life we gain in Jesus. Jesus asks us to follow him, to deny ourselves and take up our cross, but he does not leave us empty-handed. He offers us life in its fullness, life in abundance. And today, Jesus, I think, is inviting us, maybe for the first time, maybe for the thousandth time, to follow him, to lose our lives for him in order that we may save it. So would you please stand with me? We're just going to spend some time in prayer and see what the Holy Spirit wants to do this morning. Shall we just welcome the Holy Spirit? Come move amongst us. Just as Thomas has been talking, I've been made, I think the Lord made me aware of just his love and his grace for us. He loves that we're passionate about discipleship. He loves that we've come before him this morning on a Sunday to listen to his word and to commit ourselves to him afresh. His presence is with us. I think for a number of us this morning, this is going to be a recommitment moment, a moment to get just serious again about our discipleship, about having Jesus as our primary allegiance and submitting our lives to him. And Jesus is there ready to, to meet with us. He loves our heart and longs to, to transform us and to be with us. And we had a prayer team praying for us this morning and someone um, on that team said that they had a sense this morning that there was a call to commit to holiness and that rather than it being a sad thing or a, um, a solemn thing that we might assume it, it would be, that instead a call to holiness brings life, fullness and joy. There is so much more for us. And they've got this verse, you will show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forevermore.
So yeah, as we lay down our lives and commit to him, commit to following him to, to holiness, there's joy and pleasure. really think those words go again just seem to kind of echo at the moment in, in my in my mind and, and it may seem that you've made down things before but the same things just keep <clears throat> keep cropping up and and that's okay and there's a yeah, there's, there's a call as disciples of Jesus to, to take up our cross daily. And that doesn't necessarily mean that there's any less value in trying something again. There's no, there's nothing wrong with pressing into Jesus if that's where we're going. just as Thomas was talking about um, when we lay down our lives that we get fullness of life there might be some of us in this room that we just question Jesus about that we wonder what is that fullness of life and maybe doubt that it will be fullness and maybe wonder if it'll actually just be a bit disappointing well I, I just sense that Jesus is saying this morning try me just try just trust me let me show you what it's like to have life in fullness. Yes, yeah, so I just encourage you. There are so many others, I think, that Jesus wants to reveal himself more fully to this morning. And one of the ways that Jesus has to to do that, to reveal himself, to show us his goodness, his, his life and his abundant care and love for us is through meeting with us in prayer. Us just stepping forward and saying, Lord, meet with me, reveal yourself to me more fully. And we, we love doing this on a Sunday. We, we do it every Sunday, in fact. We come to him, we lay down our stuff, and he fills us. He doesn't leave us empty. He doesn't leave us wanting more. So, yeah, why don't we do that? Um, there's been a number of words shared, and I'm sure the Holy Spirit's been moving the whole morning. But if you would value prayer, if you'd value someone coming alongside you, um, then step out to the front and to the sides, and we'd love to pray for you. The Holy Spirit is here and wants to meet with you, wants to transform you. Thanks for listening. To find out more, head to Manchestervineyard.org.